my name is Becky Ritty. I am a former Christian educator, and I see many of my colleagues here. Um, I taught fifth grade for many years, um, and in many ways, my college students now are similar to fifth graders, so don't tell them that. <laughs> but uh, I am now at Michigan State University uh, studying curriculum instruction and teacher education. Um, so I come to you humbly, not as an expert by any means. I am a learner along with you. But I do have a passion, like many of you, to think about justice and race within Christian schooling contexts. Um, uh, I will look at my notes here. And one of my passions is that I want to provide opportunities for students to engage in these topics much sooner than I did and in my own failings as a, as a white educator in my own context and things that I could have done better. So my specific area of interest in grad school is looking at literacy practices and how they combine with teaching and um, critical, social, crit critical issues of social justice. So that's kind of where I'm thinking and learning at the moment. Um, and I draw on my experiences as a former Christian educator and move forward into the unknown with whatever that, that means for me. I'm Ben Bursma. I'm the principal at Rockford Christian School, which is a part of Grand Rapids Christian Schools. We're a pre-K through 8 school in Rockford, Michigan, with about 250 kids. Um, it's my first three years as an administrator. They've been interesting. <laughs> Before that, I taught uh, middle school science at an independent school in McLean, Virginia, at a charter school in D.C., and internationally in Indonesia. Um, and those experiences were formative for me too, outside of this area where I grew up. Uh, you know, I, I went to school in this building for high school, so it's always, there's some things I'm blocking out of my memory when I'm here. <laughs> uh, if you'll indulge me, I want to give you a little bit more background though. Here's me as a very adorable blonde hair, blue-eyed, uh, Frisian boy from, <laughs> From Michigan, I have my Michigan Wolverines like outfit here. I don't know if this was like the first day of kindergarten or what it was. Um, and I never really thought about being from Michigan until I left Michigan, you know, until I went to Indonesia, uh, did a study abroad in Rehoboth, uh, went to Washington, D.C. It was in those places that weren't Michigan that I most recognized my Michiganness, right? When I Somebody bumped me and I tell them sorry in the grocery store. Other people don't do that. That's a Michigan thing or a West, you know, like a Midwest thing, those cultural things. But it took me being outside of this context to recognize those things. Um, I'll, here are my parents, uh, my mom, Deborah, my, my dad, Randy. Uh, lots of times people are like, is your dad Randy? He was my teacher. I get that a lot. Uh, my parents are educators. Dr. Edmondson was talking about that now, like uh, how her parents were educators, you know. And so for me and my family, it was like my parents never told me we do things this way uh, because we said so. They're always like, why do you think we do things that way? <laughs> they ask me questions, right? And who my parents are the older I get, the more I realize how formative that is, how all these things I think of myself and who I am were shaped so significantly by my parents and who my parents are. Um, the fact that I have two parents and had a stable family childhood, you know, the more we learn about uh, ace, aces for kids and traumatic, I was spared so much of that as a kid, 
And it's uh, becoming easier for me to see how that's connected to who I am now, right? Um. Okay, a little bit about me. Um, I chose these pictures for a reason. So I grew up in an all-gender family as far as my sisters, and that shaped who I am and who I was. Sorry, who I was and who I am today. In fact, my dad is still known as like Rick and his girls, and my gender identity then played a huge impact in who I am today. So, uh, this is me. It's a little fuzzy. I grew up in Holland. This is me in the uh, parade, holding the little Delft cardboard cut out there. And growing up in Holland played a huge impact in who I am. And so I think specifically about in terms of my ethnicity and my Dutchness because I was never really exposed to anything else. And my Dutchness and my whiteness was seen as the norm and neutral. And I even think about that in terms of the parade and the fact that my whole elementary school carried only Dutch things. <laughs> and when you, were a, when you finally got to be a fifth grade boy, you were of large stature, you got to be the pig in the blanket with a pig head. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like the ultimate, the ultimate goal. But when I think back and interrogate that, there was, there was this norm being set of there's only Dutchness at Holland Christian schools. Um, and then I pulled this book out out of the bowels of my basement when my dad moved from my childhood home. And I look at it as very, very problematic. And I know some of you who grew up also have books like this where our Christianity was presented to us in the fact that there's a white Jesus, which is historically inaccurate, and only white kids are on the cover. I am, I need to look at this, and I do in my own writings, and I think that I reflect on how flawed this is, and how growing up my Christianity was tied to my whiteness. But if you aren't Dutch, this is a windmill cookie, and they're delicious. <laughs> you know, I think we talked a little bit about how there's so many ways we can identify, right? So many hats we wear. Um, these are some big identifiers, ways people identify. You know, we spoke just a little bit about how our family structure or, you know, socioeconomic or religion, how those shape us and position us in society, and these we all have this, right? And there's way more things, too, that we could say are parts of our identity. But it's really the work, the conversation we want to have, the work we want to do is start saying, are, have we done that of saying, I can identify my age and my race and my ethnicity and my gender and my, if, if I'm able-bodied or not? How do I think about myself? What parts of these identities feel uh, most pertinent to me in my daily walk? You know, because... For someone like me, who's able-bodied, my identity as an able-bodied person is something I rarely think about, because I don't have to, right? I can get into buildings without a ramp. That doesn't mean I shouldn't be concerned with the accessibility of buildings. I just, I have to do extra work to think about accessibility in buildings, because it's not something I have to do, right? And when, whenever you find an identity that uh, society gives you power, makes it easier, it, it becomes harder then for you to be self-aware of it, 
Um, so we want to ask you to take a minute and think about these things for yourself and reflect on how do you identify within these categories here. And as you're thinking about that, ask yourself, what of those identifiers feel most significant to you? So I'm going to give you about a minute to just reflect silently and then we'll share. formulated some thoughts and uh, if you feel comfortable with someone next to you, share with them which identifiers felt most significant to you and why. I'll give you about two or three minutes to do that.
I wish I had all your names in a pops on a popsicle stick so I could draw one, but I don't. Uh, was there anybody uh, in a conversation, something that somebody wants to share with a larger group? Go for it. Um, we are both Dutch, white people, but neither one of us grew up here. Mm. And so when we moved to West Michigan, we were both saying it was culture shock for us. <laughs> it was so different from where we grew up. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I have two children that are minorities, and we just moved from Oregon, and where we were in Oregon, there wasn't much diversity at all. So for us, having children with minorities, moving to a place where they could see more minorities was super important for us, just for them to be able to see there are others like them in, in different settings. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Uh, my wife is Hispanic. And she always gets mad at me because I didn't tell her what Dutch means. And so I'm like, I didn't know what it meant. And so it's, it's just a constant, we've been married for 20 years, it's still, it's not a, I mean, it's always a challenge in our relationship to figure out, to maneuver what it means to not be Dutch, part of a Dutch community. So that's a, it's a huge thing Thank you. Us. What's a way we could reframe normal, do you think? Yeah, or ways uh, that are given power, you know? Ways that uh, you're positioned in a way that it's assumed normal, right? I think it's one thing to say normal, it's a different thing to say uh, identified in a way that you're given power or privilege or access, right? So as we move to the next slide and we think about these identities, in, in terms of power and oppression and privilege, Jamar Tisby is a scholar of color who works within religious settings. And if you are not familiar with Jamar Tisby, he wrote a book called The Color of Compromise, and he wrote a second book called How to Fight Racism. But this quote, uh, there's a crucial need for people of all races to critically explore their racial identity and ensure that they are moving in the direction toward greater self-awareness and sensitivity. There's a few things that I think are pretty salient, and one of them is that as white people, we have, uh, I would say, a unique but a responsibility to really interrogate and to think about the awareness and the position that we have in society. But I think it's much harder because as we were talking about norms, that is our, um, because of one of the counters of whiteness is that whiteness is seen as normal and neutral, that doing this work is much harder because it revolves going against the grain, so to speak, of, of, of society. So Jamar Tisby, I think, really pulls this out in this quote, and we're going to interspersing resources throughout this if you have not had the chance to learn and read from him how to fight racism is a really excellent resource for you um, within schools or within churches.
Yeah, that, as you're talking, it reminds me, right, like with these things, so often when you are positioned in a place of power, those are the same areas you have blind spots. And when we think about what our blind spots are, the areas we just aren't, weren't aware of, and maybe that came up in your conversations, it's tied to those areas. At Grand Rapids Christian Schools, uh, one of our attributes uh, of a graduate and our portrait of a graduate is cultural competence. And um, it's something we've affirmed as something we want our students to have the ability to do, and it's tied to our mission to prepare effective servants of Christ for contemporary society. Uh, and we know that if you're going to be a servant of Christ in contemporary society, this is a really important skill. And I, and I say that intentionally, that it is a skill. It's a competence. It's an ability to work across difference, right? So often with this work, we think that it's um, about right answers or knowing, and that's important. We know that as teachers and as parents, right? Um, but when we're talking about cultural competence, we're talking about a skill set that helps us engage with others. And uh, it's, you can't do it if you haven't done it for yourself first, right? If you don't have a critical awareness of yourself, how are you going to be able to work across difference? And so some of the work, like Becky's talking about for us as white people, is recognizing that. Um, we like to say it's, you know, it's not about being right, it's about getting it right. And, and getting it right takes skills that are kind of encapsulated in cultural competence. Uh, there's, I'm going to play a little clip that I, think, I thought was kind of funny and helpful uh, that kind of gets at some of these same ideas too. This is Jay Smooth is his name. The problem with that all and nothing binary is that it causes us to look at racism and prejudice as if they are akin to having consoles. You either have consoles or you don't. If you've had your prejudice removed, you never need to consider it. If someone says, I think they have a little bit of time to try to see, they say, well, no, I like it. My friend likes to move because I don't know why. I want to see that little crap. But that's not how these things work. When you go through your day-to-day -day lives, there are all these uh, mass media and social stimuli, as well as processes that we all have inside our brains that we're not aware of, that cause us to build up little pockets of prejudice every day, just like flat develops on our teeth. <laughs> So we need to move away from the tonsil paradigm of a discourse towards the dental hygiene paradigm. So it's, I think, so often as teachers, too, like, uh, not everyone, some people like being a teacher for the control that we get in the classroom, right? And it's hard for us to not, with this work, uh, be able to say, I, I did it, I, did, I checked the boxes, I've done the things, you know, I had my racism removed, I'm good to go now, right? Because of the society we live in, uh, there is, it's like plaque that builds up, unless you're actively brushing your teeth and flossing, which is something I struggle with daily. Uh, and, and maybe that's a really help, helpful, actually, analogy for this kind of work and how it, it takes a daily uh, understanding and working with to work on those skills of cultural competence, of anti-racism, of anti-biased. Okay. So another quote, the definition of cultural competence has several important dimensions. 
One, it implies that all students have a culture. Many times you will ask white students, what's your culture? Blank answers, nothing. But all students have culture. Another one is that all children should develop fluency in at least one other culture, even those who are members of the dominant culture. And maybe I take a little, like, I push back a little bit on one other culture. I don't know if we should frame it as just having a specific number in mind, but I do think that it speaks to those of us who are members of the dominant culture to have fluency in other cultures as well. And I want to pause for just a minute here because I want to talk about Gloria Latson Billings. If you don't know about her, she is a world-renowned scholar in critical race theory, and I'm going to say that word and people are going to, right away I saw you go. And I want to talk just briefly about that, because I think that before critical race theory was misunderstood, mm -hmm. and before it was politicized, mm. Gloria Ladson Billings was doing work in that, because she saw how students of color, brown, black, and indigenous students, were being marginalized, and she took it as a step to think about that in an edu educational context. So I want to talk a little bit about critical race theory. And, it, and is Caleb here, Caleb Legory from Hankerston? He was signed up. If you don't, if you, after this session, I want you to go to your computers and I want you to read an article that he wrote mm -hmm. called um, CRT in the Christian School. It's in the Reform Journal. It's excellent. Mm -hmm. So CRT is not cultural competence. They, that's not the same. CRT is a highly, highly academic framework that is taught in graduate level programs. We were talking about this, but he was like, I took it last semester. <laughs> like, I took critical race theory, that was the course. And so when parents ask me, are you guys teaching critical yeah. race theory? It's like, well, you should be thrilled if they are, because they'd be doctoral level students. <laughs> you know? This is not something that's taught at third grade levels. It's just not. Um, but critical competence has an overlap and when we dig into what it means to be white or thinking about interrogating our race, there is some overlap in the fact that we want to think about uh, race as a societal construct, that society has made race and shifted it and moved it. And if you want to read more about that, Ibram X. Kendi right, wrote the book Stamped and he talks mm -hmm. really in depth about that. And also about how race and racism, especially in the United States, is built upon structures and systems. And so those are the points of overlap, but I also don't want you to be scared of, if you Google her name, and up pops critical race theory. Mm -hmm. it's, it, I feel like there's been a lot of misunderstandings in the news over the past six months that don't clearly speak to the realities of theory and go and read Caleb's article in the Reform Journal. Mm -hmm. I think, and there's a lot of nuance here, right? Like I think maybe if you're teaching preschoolers, you're wondering how can I teach cultural competence to a preschooler? Like are we going to get into issues of whiteness and social constructs? But uh, the idea of culture is one that says how do we do things, right? Culture is how we do things. And you can have uh, a culture in a school and you can have a culture in your family. 
In fact, my wife, who is, shares like all of those major identifiers, she's white, she went to Christian schools, her, her, her parents were teachers, Christian reforms, like all of these things were the same, and yet our family cultures are really different, right? In my family, respect looks like questioning and pushing back and trying to poke holes in people's ideas. And in her family, it doesn't look that way. And so when I started dating her, I found lots of differences and sometimes painfully, right? I, when you're talking about your wife and those like, uh, cultural competence is a key skill in marriage, right? Because you're taking family cultures and coming together. And so even if you're teaching preschoolers, these ideas and these skill sets of cultural competence are applicable, are important, are some of the things we think are most important, right? Um, but coming to it with the understanding of what do we mean when we're saying culture? We do mean whiteness, but we also mean how we do things in our classroom and how we do things in our school. Um, this is hard work. Uh, and it takes uh, racial stamina to do it. Uh, Robin DiAngelo is someone who's written about fragility for white people and how it can feel threatening and it's so easy to feel defensive in these spaces. Um, and white people, we're, we need to probably first struggle with that question of what does it mean to be white? I don't know if you have more you want to add about her or her work. Um, but many of you are familiar, this came out a couple of years ago called White Fragility. Um, yeah, I'll, there's more to be said here, but I'll leave it Part of the reason it's so hard to struggle with what it means to be white is this idea I think we keep coming back to of uh, white being, as Toni Morrison puts it, uh, in this country, American means white. Everybody else has to hyphenate Asian American, African American. I don't ever say I'm Dutch American, you know. I just say I'm American. And I need to recognize that my ability to say that implies that um, that that's, I have privilege to do that, and that it's understood that. It's like asking the fish what water is when they spent their whole life in it, right? That as white people, uh, culture in America has been <coughs> structured, inundated uh, with whiteness. And it takes an intentionality that is hard and is difficult to wrestle with what does that mean and look like. I want to ask you where you're at in this journey of understanding what it means to be white. Uh, Jamar Tisby talks about telling a racialized story. Uh, I loved how Dr. Edmondson this morning was talking about telling your story. You know, we get to, as teachers, tell stories. Um, and, and we have to do that first for ourselves, I think, before we can do it for others. We need to understand ourselves. And so where are you in understanding your story, maybe through a lens of whiteness? Is that, is that something you're first beginning to do? Um, or something that you've been thinking about for a while and uh, you're in those spaces and you're pushing yourself to think more, you've got the books on your nightstand. Where are you in that journey? Can I ask you a quick question? Um, yeah. You've, you've had we had we had a chapel at our school blow up because the speaker used the phrase white privilege. And We've come to learn that white privilege means very different things to different people. You used the phrase a few times. Could you give your definition of white privilege and maybe you do the same? Just Sure. I don't know if I have a definition offhand. I think just like I talk about the idea of privilege, 
I guess I, white privileges are access and opportunities I have because of my whiteness. Just like when I say I'm able-bodied, I think I have an able-bodied privilege. Mm -hmm. I have uh, male privilege. Mm -hmm. I have, um, you know, there's a privilege that comes for me for having two parents, my family structure. There's all kinds of access to opportunities and things that I get to do because of those identifiers, things I didn't actually have any choice mm -hmm. in lots of times, right? Like my ability or you could have water privilege. You've got access to clean water. You can drink it whenever you want, and you never think about it. And there's people all over the world who aren't, who are uh, not privileged with that, right? I don't know. We have water privilege, so I think it's one of those terms that uh, is like a buzzword, and there is lots of misunderstanding uh -huh. around. But when I get to the like, just the idea of uh, me being white, what are the things that I've never had to do? Mm -hmm. When I lived on the Mosaic floor at Calvin College. It was an intentionally anti-racist floor. And we did an experiment. Maybe some of you guys have done it. It's about Peggy McIntosh's unpacking the invisible knapsack. And there's a whole list of like just statements. And mm -hmm. we were all on the line. And if you could uh, agree with the statement, you took a step back. And if you couldn't, you took a step backwards. Step forward or step backwards. And it was stuff like, I can buy Band-Aids in my skin color. And I could take a step forward, right? And I, you know, can find hair care products that fit me, and I could take another step forward. And by the end of it, it was all me and the other white people were on one side of the room, and people of color were on the other side of the room. And it was all stuff in society mm -hmm. that just responding to how we go about it, I've been pulled over or whatever it is, mm. all these issues of police brutality or things, right, like uh, are fraught with conflict and but they get at this idea of how our experiences, our lived experiences, are affected by the color of our skin. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I would I would completely agree with that, but one thing I've learned is that that is not what white privilege means to a lot of people. Which yeah. is very surprising to me, but it's it just means something completely different. And when I'm in these spaces as an administrator talking to parents who have questions about it, one of the first things I want to do is say, Tell me what it means to you. Yeah. And I want to hear where they're coming from, right? Because I think everybody I've developed a lot of empathy in this work in the sense that we are all only living out of our experience. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of white privilege is tied to that opportunity I had to live in that floor with those people, uh, those people of color who chose to engage and pour into me, right, and, though, and my parents, and, and I've gotten those opportunities, and that doesn't make me better. Um, and so many people haven't had that opportunity, right? And I want to hear what is it about their experiences and their backgrounds that make them live out of that. Because it informs why they're, you know, thinking about it. Were their parents cops? Did they grow up with a single white mom on welfare? And mm -hmm. so the ideas of privilege all of a sudden discount my story, right? But uh, you, need, you need to make a space where you can have that conversation. Yeah and meet someone on a human level, right? And to do that, I think that's that cultural competence. You gotta be able to mm -hmm. see people, hear people, listen well, um, without defensiveness. That's hard, but it's important. Can you talk to the person next to you if you feel comfortable about where you're at in this? And if you're not white, I'm sure you could say a lot. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
about being aware of my own privileges as a white man and stuff like that, but I, it has not often translated into my making a whole lot of changes in my life or making a whole lot of difference in my students' lives or things like that. It's an ongoing process, but knowledge is one thing, action is another. Right. And coming into this, we recognize that everyone's at a different space and place. And for some of you, this may be a first conversation and an entry point. And you're right, action is hopefully the result of this. But from what I've learned in my own journey is that I've dug deeper into my own identity. And then I realize I have more learning to do and more learning to do. And so for me, that's just, this is the place where I need to spend lots of time, and then you're right, move into action from this. And we will hope to talk about that yet. And we're not going to walk away with answers like, do this, don't do that. But thank you, I appreciate your response. Can I piggyback on that a little bit too, and I'm excited to kind of hear what next steps are, if you will, and I, that's what scares me a little bit in this journey of, of understanding and saying, okay, what can, what can be done? But I worry about the the white savior complex, for a mm -hmm. lot of a better reason. Okay, we're sure. a room full of white people. How are we going to go fix this? And it's like, hey, like, when do we need to step back? When do I need to shut up? When do I need to elevate other people around me and give them that voice, mm -hmm. um, especially in an administrative setting? And mm -hmm. so, I yeah, that's where I, I hesitate. I don't want to, yeah, I'm, I tend to be a steamroller. But I, I, I need to know when, when do I, I need to step back on that and, and raise other voices around me. Uh, wait, I talked to Ben about this just before this this before the session. I said we're here, like deeply centering whiteness, <laughs> and when really the work that we're doing is so that we are be able to step back mm -hmm. and elevate and amplify voices and experiences. Want to say anything else? Oh, want to say one? Um, we were talking about how this conversation, not this conversation. But just around race can be very polarizing, like very black or white. Um, and as someone who's African American and white, mm -hmm. sometimes I'm like, where do I fit in this conversation? Or what are my students thinking about it? So I think I'm learning a lot and trying to find resources for that third space where mm -hmm. we don't talk about it a lot um, for myself and for yeah for the students that I teach too. Yeah, Jackie. Uh, I just Jackie. And to piggyback off that, journeys that we take, our anti-racism journey is not linear. Mm. Not, there is no finish line. It's just going to be a continual process. And for me, that's the truth, too. It's sputtered and started and sputtered and stopped. And um, I really like what you had to say about the hope that is we can't solve it on our own. So far, we've kind of been talking a lot about individual, personal self-awareness, which is where we have to start, right? Uh, but that work takes place in a broader context. Um, and 
don't know if you've seen that like picture of the fences at baseball games. Same kind uh -huh. of idea. Just they're models to maybe help us understand different things. So this idea is uh, inequality is unequal access to opportunities. That's what it says. So you know this person doesn't get any apples and. Equality is maybe evenly distributing tools and assistance, so they both get a bag, they both get the same size ladder. Um, equity is where we're, we're talking about tools that fit, um, custom tools for identity that address those inequalities. Uh, and I think we're getting better at doing this, especially teachers in our classrooms, you know, like the pedagogy we have is one of equity so often, right? It's not the what we maybe grew up with, if everybody gets the same kind of teaching. We're not teaching in a way that's uh, going to meet kids where they're at. Um, we want to do that academically, but we also want to do this in these other social and emotional ways, too. But the idea of justice, then, pushes even past that, right? Because justice talks about addressing the system that this is happening in, mm -hmm. right? Fixing the systemic inequalities uh, in order to offer equal access with tools, opportunities. Uh, and we haven't yet talked a lot about God, uh, but justice is something deeply rooted in who God is in the scripture, mm -hmm. right? And that idea of shalom, uh, and, you know, it's like I, Nicholas Waltersdorf writes a lot about this. Uh, the idea of shalom, of flourishing, of right relationships, the way God has intended things to be, um, we're missing that, and it's what we're yearning for. And that idea of shalom in it, of delight, peace, flourishing, in that is justice. And biblical justice is one that says the high places have to be made low, and the low places made high, right? We see those motifs and themes throughout the Bible. And so... This work uh, is deeply spiritual, deeply tied to our faith, to think in not just individual ways, but in systemic ways. So often in our North American faith, we're asked to just reflect individually, to have a personal experience with God. Uh, but so often the God of the Bible is a communal God and one that's thinking much broader than just our individual experience. And so this conversation, this work around whiteness, we need to center in a, uh, a vision of shalom, of calling, of justice, and biblical justice, and what that looks like. Lisa Sharon Harper writes a book called The Very Good Gospel, and mm -hmm. she says, unjust systems and structures remain in place because the people do not demand a better world, but this is what God calls us to do. If you have not read this book, I, it's called The Very Good Gospel by Lisa Sharon Harper. So being rooted in our Reformed tradition, and I was going to say this earlier in topics that could be contentious or politicized, but because we're Reformed Christian educators, the way that we see the world would be able to discern it, this is, this is where we are placed, and I think what gives uh, being Reformed and being a part of this gives me hope that we're not calling this black and white, like this is bad, this is good, CRT bad. This is, but we, have, we get to be able to talk about it, we get to take aspects that we identify with and put that into our classrooms. So uh, I will let you read it, 
this is our world belongs to God, but again, speaking to, we're going to be hoping for an end of injustice to seeing the Lord, and this is what God wants for us. Ben included this picture of a the New Yorker cover, mm -hmm. and you can see that George Floyd brings with him a history all the way down to enslavement. Mm. And this is really powerful. But what's powerful, I think, for me as a white educator is that as white educators, we need to not see this as black history, but our history and the roles that we've played in injustice from the beginning to present day. Mm. Yeah, I think our, that's our calling as teachers too, right? That our students can see themselves regardless of their, their racial identity in that picture. If I can't find myself in that picture, I'm falling short, right? I think that's me assuming I'm neutral, that I'm not a part of it. And when we're talking about, you know, strategies in the classroom and things like that and what can teachers do uh, once we have this awareness, uh, pushing ourselves and our students to reframe things in a way that thinks systemically uh, is important. You know, when you read about Jackie Robinson and Black History Month, you can say he was the first, you know, black person to break the, break the color barrier in baseball, or you could say Jackie Robinson was the first black person white owners let play baseball. Mm -hmm. And those are very different ways to say the same thing. And the latter way suggests uh, that there's something maybe was unjust about the system, right? And as teachers, when you look at your curricula and when you're thinking about what you teach, you need to be doing that work to stepping back, especially if you're white, to say, mm -hmm. where is the whiteness in this? And where am I assuming it? And where does something need to be reframed for my students? We don't have a lot of time, but I do want to think about what our calling is as Christian educators and how this might play out in our classroom. I'm going to start saying about my own failings and my own missteps that I've made. I taught in a predominantly white school. In many cases, I taught a global unit on social justice and paid more attention to customs and cultures than I did to the unjust practices that separated um, communities and countries and what was considered third world and first world. In many cases, I talked at Martin Luther King Day, and we watched that video, I Have a Dream, and we were like, we all need to be brothers and sisters. And then I ended it and thought that I had done my job. But I'm gonna ask us in this room to push ourselves to think a little bit more deeply and fully. Some of the first steps that I've taken to try to confront what whiteness means for me is that I had to talk to a teacher about a, a, a picture of what I consider the white Jesus in the classroom, and I had to have that really hard conversation with her and say, this makes me uncomfortable and this is why, and that was tough. Mm -hmm. I um, had to talk to my principal about a Thanksgiving feast that I felt like needed to be reconsidered mm -hmm. in ways that were really problematic mm -hmm. and portrayed the customs of indigenous people in very, very problematic ways. I had to have that conversation. And nothing changed, but I needed to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking to take these small steps, I think it's important we recognize how, what our whiteness means to us, but then how we can take some steps forward. And I think that the language we use in our classroom matters. 
Are we still talking about the age of discovery and the westward expansion? Mm. Or can we frame that a little differently? Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to give this one example. Uh, so uh, Martin Luther King Day, we want to do that. I have a dream. We're all brothers and sisters. And I've seen some things like cracking a white egg and a brown egg on a plate and saying, look it, we're all different on the outside, but we're same on the inside. I think it misses the mark because we're not addressing the injustices that have caused and the history of injustice for what it means to be the brown egg and what it means to be the white egg in that mm -hmm. scenario. And I say that because I've made mistakes too. So if you've done that, I'm not saying for you to feel guilty because we're all on a journey. Mm -hmm. We're starting in one place. And when we know how to do better, then we make the changes that we need to. So how we frame things, how the way that we teach, um, as we think about not only what we're teaching, but what we're leaving out. Mm. And having conversations with colleagues about this, if you feel like you can do that. I think having, that's one of the first action steps, is getting together with a group of teachers. I know that's how I learned the most, was having a group of teachers that I could talk to, and we can discuss issues of whiteness or what is this what are we really teaching um, so that's my I would call it my soapbox but I think that that's what our calling that's what I'm excited about and for the future of Christian education is that we have the opportunity to do things differently and reevaluate and interrogate and what move forward yeah we're doing this for ourselves you know we got to be doing it in a broader sense too like uh, I I'm curious, you know, what role does whiteness play in your curriculum, classroom, school? Um, where are you, or maybe your school is at, in looking at their admissions policies, or how do you attract and retain teachers, and what are those maybe systemic pieces of your own context that might be affecting things? Where is whiteness in those spaces, too, and how do you address that and talk about that, right? Uh, what kind of structures do you have? in your school saying, we got a lot of work to do. I mean, Grand Rapids Christian has a lot of work to do in this too. If you go to our website, there's not a tab that says diversity, equity, inclusion. Like, uh, we've got work to do. Uh, and, but we welcome you into that work, encourage you in that conversation where you're at. Uh, it's not, we don't have time to have us kind of turn and talk about the role whiteness plays in your classroom. In school, but I encourage you to go back to your context, back to your teams, back to your school, and ask that question and start talking about it, right? Because um, if we don't, then we're going to miss it. You know, unless we start, unless we have an awareness about it, we're going to miss it. Did you have anything? Well, I wanted to talk about those of you who are educators, K two preschool. Um, Anissa Eddy just came out with this book called "Talking to Kids About Race." It's right now a self-published in uh, Schuler's bookstores. That's where I bought it because it's independently published. But if you're thinking specifically about how to, have, how to have the conversations, for me, I think literacy is a great way to do it. But if you're in younger contexts, you may want to check out this book in particular. Again, it's at Schuler bookstores. You might be able to get it online, but it's not going to be, uh, it's not well distributed in um, Things like that. Sorry, just about that book. There is actually a uh, black and biracial couple that own a company called Truth and Gold, and they sell it. So, just thank you. Uh, we only got a few minutes left. We uh, wanted you to think about this, and hopefully, you can respond in your own context about it. 
Um, I think we have a couple minutes for questions if anybody has something that they'd like to ask. Yeah. Um, thinking about, I love cultural competency. Competency is great, right? I, 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 mean, I see that as, I'm not going to use the word easy, but that as something we can teach and help our students understand. How would you tackle that with your very big kids, meaning your parents? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what I find is sometimes our parents lack, not our parents, the parents in general in Christian schools, may lack the cultural competency even to be willing to engage in that conversation. Whereas I think our kids would surprise us if we gave them better opportunities for cultural competency. That's all the time we have. <laughs> No, that's, and, that, and for me, it's like painfully slow conversation by conversation. You know, it's like I do think that communication is such an important part that uh, if you don't tell the story, somebody else tells it for you. So unless you are explicit in saying, here's what I'm doing in my classroom, my school, and why, then you're leaving it open for misinterpretation. So uh, for me, it's even been helpful to reframe it when somebody, it's like, you get the email about the thing, and then my, you know, Sarah knows your stomach, you pit in your stomach, you feel it, like, oh. But um, one of our other colleagues, Ann Baker, was reframing it for me of like, oh, what a great opportunity you have to like, again, go back to what it is you do and why you do it. And seeing those opportunities with our parents to partner with them, to, to minister to them, to do our mission with our parents is an opportunity. And seeing it, it changes how I think we approach it, not as something that, oh gosh, we feel nervous about, but uh, here's an opportunity for a conversation and a partnership to do this work. Along those lines, I just, I find myself tired and, and thinking about, I'm trying and I think I have this really cool chapel and then it blows up in my face, and, uh. right? Or, or the emails come and, and something I've been thinking about lately is if I'm tired of this as a white woman dealing with this and wrestling with it for the past handful of years, how much my brothers and sisters who are of color, how tired they must be. Yeah. What was the quote, the Austin King Brown quote? I'm going to look it up a second. Can you summarize it a bit? Yeah, it's the first paragraph of the book. Yeah, I, I don't know if any of you have read the Austin Channing Brown book about how whiteness is exhausting, but thinking about how whiteness is exhausting for people of color to deal with. Um, white people can be exhausting, particularly exhausting are white people who don't know they are white and those who need to be white. But for all the white people I've met, I've met a lot of them in my more than three decades of living, studying and working in places when I'm often the only black woman in sight. I first, the first I found exhausting were those who expected me to be white. I want to ask Ina to close us in prayer. Um, and Becky and I are both tall, so you can find us around and ask us more questions. Uh,